You're listening to the Games Review Dogpiss podcast. I'm James Bachelor, Editor-in-Chief, and before I'm joined by the rest of the team, I'm joined by indie developer Shahid. How are you doing, sir? I'm really good, thank you. Um, good. It's, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? It's been quite a week. So you're joining us to talk about one of the uh, one of the big stories we want to discuss this week, which is obviously the passing of Sir Clive Sinclair. So Sir Clive Sinclair has died at the age of 81 after a long illness. He was best known to the games industry as the inventor of the ZX Spectrum, uh, which is a home computer that debuted in 1982. Uh, it's a platform where a lot of programmers kind of found their start. It was a big seller for its time. It sold 5 million systems over 10 years, uh, more than 2,000 games away uh, more than 2,000 games available for the platform. Uh, and he was even knighted a year after the system launched. Obviously, he's done so much more uh, for other other areas of like the technology and the gaming industry, but that, that's kind of the big one that perhaps our audience knows him for. Shahid, could you tell me a bit more about your own experiences with Sir Sinclair and his work? If it hadn't been for the Spectrum, I would not be in the video games industry today, despite the fact that the Spectrum wasn't my first machine. And uh, the, the reason for this is that a friend of mine in the last physics lesson of GCSE, actually back in the day, it's called O-Levels, of 1982, he handed me this beautiful colour leaflet, kind of like a mini brochure. And this was of the soon-to-be-released ZX Spectrum. Up until that point, my classmates had ZX81s, his previous device, which wasn't nearly as appealing to me. I mean, I knew nothing about computers. I knew that my my friends were were certainly interested in them, but they didn't seem appealing to me, whereas arcade machines did seem appealing. And the Spectrum, for me, was the first device at a mass market price with incredible power and features to come close to the dream of having arcade games in your home, because that's what it was all about. So Sir Clive meant an awful lot to me, because without him, I wouldn't have a life. Fair enough. That's a good summary. That's a good summation. So kind of, what, what kind of, um, which of the Spectrum games do you kind of most remember? Which ones stand out from you, for you, that, that kind of best represent what that, that platform delivered? Yeah, that's a great question. There were so many, as you said earlier. And so to pick out a few is really difficult, but I'm going to give it a go. The very first Spectrum game that had a huge impact on me was Ultimate Play the Game's Lunar Jetman, which is the first 48k game, I think, apart from Attic Attack that they released. So they did both of those around the same kind of time. But Lunar Jetman was the one that really appealed to me first. Uh, Very soon after that, probably the best game on the Spectrum ever was Jet Set Willy. I mean, I'm on record as saying that game and the subsequent Saber Wolf also featuring in my best ever Spectrum games list, cost me my A-levels. That's nonsense, of course. The reason <laughs> reason I lost my A-levels is because I bunked off for the last year to learn how to, to program and to get into the games industry. There was no games industry, of course. It was because of Sir Clive that we, we began to develop, I guess, a cottage industry around young people making video games. And so I would say the first one, Luna Jetman. The second one, Jet Set Willy, the absolute pinnacle. Uh, and then Saber Wolf to some extent. Uh, and then the technical... Um, pièce de résistance that was Night Law by Ultimate Play the Game. So those those four, I would say, were the absolute best Spectrum games for me. The ones that had the most impact. See, as a, as a rare fan, 
uh, obviously I have to kind of get the obligatory mention that ultimate play of the game obviously became rare. So kind of, it, again, it's one of those things like had they not survived so well on the spectrum and other platforms as well, but like particularly the, the spectrum, we might not have rare, we might not have Banjo-Kazooie, Perfect Dark, Sea of Thieves, etc. Like, you know, you know the, the, the legacy is there. In, in kind of your own words then, like we, we've, we've touched on it here with your own story, but like what impact would you say he's had on, on the games industry as a whole? I'm biased. But I think British programmers are some of the most technically competent in the world. And I'm not sure what the reason for that is. We've always had a good reputation here. And I I say British because, of course, not just in England, certainly north of the border, there have been some amazing games programmers from the early days, the the bedroom programming days, as as we used to call them. Uh, Not so cool now. Nowadays, we say indie, of course, but, you know, still in bedrooms. It's, It's been mainly a technical thing, I would say less so an artistic thing. British programmers tend to be able to squeeze an awful lot out of the hardware. And because of the limitations that we faced with some of those early devices, we had to invent all kinds of tricks and techniques that became standards that were used throughout the world. I think maybe the weather also played a part, you know. (laughs) We we didn't really have um, the, the beach culture of California. And because of that, we were all indoors finding our own amusement and programming was one of those amusements and uh if it hadn't been for programming my goodness what else would we have been doing listening to our record players maybe or the radio there wasn't an awful lot else to do so so this thing was the most amazing escape and suddenly you had this device that was accessible to so many people i mean myself included i mean remember i was an extremely poor child um but there were so many others like me and for all of us the spectrum was an incredible release. Um, it, it, it was freeing in a way that I don't think any other device has been. And the amount of creativity we were able to put into that is reflected by the thousands of games that ultimately appeared on that device. You'll forgive me for using the term ultimately again. Not at all. Not at all. Um, I love the idea that, you know, because there's nothing to do outside here, that's why we've perfected inside. <laughs> With, with the uh, earliest well, video things games. have certainly got better, but I mean, in the eighties, let's face it, it was grim. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking there, like I did remind me of. I, I, I genuinely had a, an interesting anecdote um, recently about the spectrum. So uh, part of the reason that there's a big, you're talking about like um, a lot of talent north of the border. Part of the reason there's a lot of games development um, talent in Dundee specifically is because that's where a ZX Spectrum manufacturing plant was. And loads of people kind of got cheap Spectrums that failed their quality checks. Hey, hey. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they failed their quality checks, but they still worked. And a lot of people who picked those up, like that was basically the, the um, genesis of things like, of studios like DMA Design, which obviously went on to do Grand Theft Auto and you know, became Rockstar. And this, like, so yeah, again, like the, the DNA there is just, it's, it's yeah, really fascinating I mean, to think about. Yeah, you've you got to remember there was... There was no, there were no CD players, never mind streaming. There were no mobile phones. We had three and a half TV channels, which didn't air all the time anyway. There's absolutely nothing to do. The the culture was much, much smaller than it is today. You either started a band or you made video games on on something like the Spectrum. That was our outlet. And the Spectrum was a box of magic tricks. And the amount of magic people were able to produce from it was in direct proportion, I suspect, to the amount of sunlight they could get outside, rather inversely proportional. So I think you had a lot of great programmers in Dundee and elsewhere, not just uh, because they had more devices to get hold of. But certainly, I think there is a relationship there uh, between the weather and the amount of time people spent on their machines. Really work out. Like, I wonder if someone can historically study which was more impactful on the Scottish <laughs> games. <laughs> you know, Sir Clive Sinclair or the weather? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, it took Sir Clive Sinclair's device mm. for that to happen. I, I mean, I think the question was more around why, why British programmers got so good at it. And I think it's because we had the right device and we had the right environment and not as much culture as other places on the outside. And also the time, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, a time when there was quite a lot of unemployment. Mm. You know, jobs were not as easy to come by. So people did have more time back then. Certainly, I, I knew I was going to fail my A-levels. I wouldn't have had a job. I probably would have had to have gone back and done another year of A-levels because I had no job to go to. Certainly, without A-levels, no university. Of course, back then, you didn't have to um, fork out nine grand or, or whatever it is a year for university as you do nowadays. Um, but that said, that was an option that wasn't available to a lot of people back then either because it was so difficult to get into really good universities. Let's look at the um, the spectrum again. Like, kind of, I'm intrigued to your thoughts on on the impact it had on games and games development in general. So, I'm trying to think of like example. We've already talked about like kind of your favorite um, Spectrum games, but are there titles out there you look at and kind of there that laid the template for like game design lessons that the industry learned? Things like the things that people mastered or started to master or start to lay the foundations for with the games they made for the Spectrum and, and other platforms of the time that have kind of informed the sort of games that we have even today, perhaps. The efficient organisation of memory, because to get the most out of a device, you, you have to really master how to extract every single little bit of the memory. Even in modern devices today, the efficient use of memory is critical. It's more critical now than it's ever been, because you want to keep it as, as compact as possible so that you don't have to wait around for the relatively slow external memory. Other things that were really useful are a whole bunch of display techniques and display tricks. I mean, the beginnings of 3D programming on mass market machines started to happen around that time. One of the big breakthroughs, of course, was I've mentioned Night Law, but no one had ever seen isometric graphics to that kind of uh, degree on any device, anywhere, ever. So I'm pretty sure it was Night Law that kickstarted the, the kind of high detail isometric approach. I know there was Antitac many years before, but it didn't quite have the same impactful graphics and the character, the animation, the technical trickery that the Wizards that Ultimate, later known as Rare, uh, implemented. And then you had people to start to really push the idea of how much you could put onto that tiny screen. There was Fairlight, which is kind of like an evolved version of the whole isometric rendering technique. Uh, and, and then you started to get people who pushed the boundaries of how many rooms you could get into a device like that. By rooms, I mean flip screen. So mm. Nodes of Yesod was a good example of that. I mean, there are countless examples of breaking the boundaries that started to happen with the Spectrum. I mean, for example, before Jet Set Willy, there was no... Um, so think about Manic Miner, the game that preceded it by Matthew Smith. It's a level-based game essentially a puzzle platformer. You had to collect all of, the, all of the collectibles on a screen and then you could go to the next screen. Well, Jet Set Willie, you didn't have to do that. You could take any path you wanted. And it was the first time you got the sense that you were in an open world and you could choose your path through it. So, okay, I can't do this screen, but I can go that route instead. And, and that sense of freedom, I'd never felt in a video game before. I know that um, on the other side of the pond, they'll have a different cultural experience of video games. But for us, it was that. It was Jet Set Willie. Hold on a minute. This, this is not just some puzzle that I'm trying to solve. It's now an adventure. Nice. Um, 
let's go back to Sir Clive himself. Um, intrigued on kind of a similar note, anything that you think that we could learn from Sir Clive and his work and the way he worked that perhaps still applies today? Like what, what inspiration should we be taking from Sir Clive? What I loved about Sir Clive was that he was essentially a fan of, of populism. It sounds strange, I know, but he wanted to bring the future forward. It's not that he wanted to make tremendous profit out of the devices and inventions he came up with. He wanted to take the ideas that would become mainstream in two or three years time and make them available to ordinary people like you and me at a reasonable price in a miniaturized form today. That was a genius of Sir Clive. He tried it many times, didn't always succeed. But I think with the spectrum, certainly he succeeded on a scale that has benefited millions and millions and millions of people around the world today. Jaya, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Is there anything kind of you, you want to add on this subject before uh, we, we break off this section and I uh, bring in the rest of the team? I think the entire world, especially during this difficult period through the pandemic, owes a tremendous debt of gratitude to Sir Clive, his forward thinking, thinking and his willingness to find a way to bring amazing technology into the reach of so many people. That's lovely. I'm now joined by other members of the GameStudio.biz team. We have our very own Sinclair, Brendan Sinclair, managing editor of the site. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm I'm doing okay. Getting by. Good, good. Any relation? Are you a none, descendant? None that I know or of. A, a, I say descendant, like a weird spun-off cousin or something. Parallel universe cousins, yeah. No, Parallel no, universe I, cousins. I was I was not even aware of Sir Clive Sinclair actually until um, well into my adulthood because like the UK and the US and Canada had some sort of like weird parallel video game industries in in the eighties with um, UK side getting really into the microcomputers and the Amstrad Spectrum BBC Micro and for us it was like. There was Atari and Television, ColecoVision. There was the one kid on the block who had a Commodore 64. And then once the NES happened, it was all over. By the time the NES happened, I happened. So it's like, yeah, I kind of, I missed that whole microcomputer generation. And it's it's annoying because I, I hear kind of the kind of the veterans of the industry like talking about that age and like the forming the kind of the foundations of what became the UK games industry. It's like, I missed all of this, all these kind of, you know, retro influential titles and i've never played any of them and i kind of feel like i should i should go back and brush up on my history we are also joined by staff writer jeffrey rousseau how are you sir hello i'm i'm doing well today um i'm caffeinated and ready excellent i can say brendan's not tired brendan didn't say he was tired so i consider that progress <laughs> i'm sorry yes. did i leave that out you did is it now just assumed you are always tired basically safe assumption Fair enough. We have two more topics to discuss on this episode. Uh, the first one we're going to discuss is uh, Epic versus Apple. Um, so last Friday, so roughly when we would have re recorded a previous episode, um, the judgment came out. We obviously didn't have an episode last week because we ran podcast versions of the panels from our Best Places to Work UK Awards, which if you haven't already checked out, they're all on your podcast feed, or you can check them out at YouTube and you can actually see the people talking to you. Um but yeah, the Epic versus Apple judgment came out. Uh, we've been waiting for this since I believe, early May. 
the response was varied. I kind of touch on this in the intro to the um, I, I did a feature with some legal experts kind of getting their take on, on what's happened. The actual coverage varied in terms of the number of people who declared this a victory for Epic or for Apple. And I'm not sure. I've seen one site say both sides lost. And I think perhaps that's the most accurate way of looking at it. Um, before we delve into this, I want to get your, 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 gen- your thoughts, gents. To be honest, I didn't really think that Epic would win. You know, the whole time I was following everything. Uh, at the same time, I was also it was it was more of a really a learning process for for myself. You know, as as a journalist, just to you know understand legalese and court documents and how and you know Brandon and I spent a lot of time like, you know, this is what's really being said here. But anyway, long story short, um, yeah, I didn't think they really had a strong case to begin with because. You know, in my mind, I'm like, you're, you're trying to speak to your case here, but I don't think you have strong enough evidence for that. You know, just from an outsider looking in, I, I really didn't think they had a shot. And lo and behold, that's what ended up happening. I think the judge put it quite um, quite accurately. Like somewhere in the 180 page document she wrote to kind of, I think I, I think Judge Gonzalez Rogers knew that this is not even close to the end of this matter. So I kind of assume I, I'm not familiar with how long judgments tend to be, but I'm guessing 180 pages is basically her using as much page space as possible to kind of shut down potential avenues, potentially open up other ones. But within that judgment, somewhere she said like the epic is basically overreached. And yeah, they went in all guns blazing on on what they were accusing Apple of. And yeah, I think we all knew. Like watching the trial, there was there was some quite weak arguments there. There is some there is some semblance of a of a point to be made. Absolutely, namely you know, perhaps the the thirty percent cut and the how strict the system is, perhaps. But yeah, the way they made the argument, it's 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 not surprising. They only they only won. And I do that in air quotes, one, one out of uh, 10 counts. So the count they won, the the judge said that, yes, Apple has engaged in anti-competitive practices. Mm. And I, I thought that was um, clear before the trial began. Uh, <laughs> I think there's there's a very thin line between uh, standard operating procedure for a successful company in the United States and anti-competitive practices to begin with. Um, and, and I think uh, a fair bit of, of what Apple's done has crossed that line. And the judge apparently uh, agreed and Epic made that case all, all right. So the the issue that Epic got, you know, a concession, I guess, from the judge on, uh, uh, an injunction against Apple on, is, is that developers now, uh, Apple has to let them link out to another site where they can run their payment transactions with people. And that makes it easier for someone like epic to to say like okay instead of just going through the apple app store and apple automatically taking its 30 percent cut now we can tell you there's another way to buy this stuff and you can go to our website and and get it there and even though the judge didn't say that allows you to like not give apple its 30 percent to this point it kind of like those transactions Apple has allowed them to happen without really taking its its cut, you know, because you can you can go on to the Epic Games official site and buy Fortnite V Bucks, right? Pay them, buy them directly from Epic, and then go on to iOS and and play the game if you already had it installed, I think, um, <laughs> and then go on to iOS and spend them there. 
like people who who already had it installed before Epic uh, or people who already had the game installed before Apple pulled it from the App Store, uh, they've they've been able to do that. Now, the judge also said, though, that that Epic had to pay Apple its 30 percent cut on all the all the iOS sales since it was uh, removed from the store because Apple hadn't been doing that. And that's, you know, at least 12 million, probably considerably more for the the months uh, that, that they didn't have data for. That seems to me like a drop in the bucket for Epic, though. Like that's it's not a huge punishment. But the idea no. that that other developers, any sufficiently big developer now, can just decide to like point customers to its own website and then possibly offer them discounts on whatever it is that they're getting, you know, 15% off if you get it on the on our website. And then Apple, you know, they don't get their 30%. So you get your thing cheaper and we get more money for it. Um, and and if, if enough big developers uh, take that route, then that, that really hurts Apple's business because they've, you know, they've been racking up huge revenues from the app store but it's from you know a uh, a relative handful of of the apps compared to you know the the hundreds of thousands um that they that they host on there so like i i think that's that's a big loss for apple i think that was it it sounds like that was going to happen anyways like we had a the the ruling in in south korea compelling them to you know drop their anti-steering is the the phrase they use to drop the anti-steering practices that prevent people from linking out anyways and there are so many so many anti-competitive behavior lawsuits against apple and google and and app stores in in other markets pending anyways that it it, i think it was clear that something was going to change um Hmm. so so that's that's a big it's a big blow to apple but um they they got out of this without being declared a monopoly which yeah. is, is good for them because that was sort of a worst case scenario, I think. And um, the but the judge didn't didn't just kind of like didn't say Apple's definitely not a monopoly. They just said that that Epic completely pooched the you know the argument that it made, and instead of attacking it on these grounds, which the judge thought might have been more relevant, it it mm. it uh, it either attacked them on those grounds, but then didn't offer any kind of evidence to back it up um or or just kind of like gestured towards them without without really getting into it there was a definite subtext to some of the judging uh, there was a definite subtext to some of the judgment that was that essentially said like well epic mucked this up but if someone else were to try like there were there were just there were a few kind of the way she worded things the way she's like well you know epic failed to prove this that doesn't mean it's not provable yeah, like the I you know said um, as you say, like she she didn't say that she didn't declare Apple a monopoly. I believe the term used was an incipient monopoly, which basically means on the verge of being a monopoly. Um, but that that whole thing, like not being declared a monopoly, like the whole walled garden system not being declared a, a, a anti-competitive, that if anything felt like a relief because I remember we we spoke about this probably around this sort of time last year. When she was first assigned this case, Judge Gonzalez Rogers was, she said that she warned that this case could have serious ramifications. Those were her words, serious ramifications for Xbox, Nintendo and Sony, which obviously run very much a similar kind of um, model. You can only download stuff on their consoles from their 
app stores, if you will. There are no third-party stores on their consoles. Um, and the worry was that if Epic won and won big, then everything would change and you know, you'd, have, you'd get a Ubisoft store on Xbox and that sort of thing. And that's not happened. I think the fact that business model is protected means that the ramifications for the industry are going to be considerably less than perhaps we feared at this time last year, which oddly I feel like is a relief. I feel like it because... As we've seen in this industry so often, like if, if something changes the way that companies monetize, they find other ways to monetize. And now we don't face that possibility, thankfully. Yeah. Three cheers for the status quo. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, maybe maybe that's a bit too strong. One thing I will say, like, it, it's interesting. You say, like, Apple's been dealt a big blow in that anti-steering has been turned off. And you're right. Like, it, it's brilliant that developers are able to redirect um consumers now and, and pass them on to different uh, different payment options the confusing thing is though that we don't know how big a drop uh, how big a blow that is to apple because technically and the judge considered this as well that the apple is still entitled to some form of compensation so and it gets confusing so so v bucks yes v bucks are kind of um a cross-platform currency so if you buy v bucks directly from epic games there's no telling what platform you're going to use them on so i guess perhaps that frees them up from apple definitely claiming it's 30 percent although when you look at that playstation deal that came out during the trial playstation i think are entitled to x amount of um the revenues depending on how many people are and how much a proportion of fortnite players are playing on ps4 because obviously like playstation 4 is by far and away the most popular fortnite platform therefore they're like well we get a chunk of if people buy v bucks you know randomly on different platforms but they're spending them on ours we should get a cut of that i believe i may be oversimplifying because it's been a good few months but that was my understanding of it but if it's something like specifically for ios or if it's something that is bought by someone who registered through an ios app technically buried deep in that developer licensing agreement you get if you start putting your app out on apple it says that apple is entitled to compensation for every transaction that is related to its platform not just directly through it but related to it now it doesn't stipulate that it's 30 percent the judge didn't say it's definitely um open to 30 percent in fact the judge actually said like i believe the judge said that like 30 percent seems to be kind of an arbitrary number they basically she she, she suggested that 30 percent is, is not necessarily the correct rate or an, an approved rate as it were she i think she's left that open for someone else to attack but it's interesting like yes okay we've got this big win that yes now we can direct people to collect you know to, to pay on other platforms and via other means but that doesn't mean you're completely escaping the epic so the apple cut because apple is still entitled to it it's a lot more complicated for it to monitor it and collect it but it is still entitled so again how much has changed yay for the status quo big question mark yeah that's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see apple try to to monitor and collect it and and how that might impact things like crossplay. As I, I believe um, in that game company's Sky Children of Light, there's crossplay between Switch and mobile right now. But uh, if you if you buy the premium currency on mobile, you can't spend it on the Switch. Right. So things that are only sold on the Switch version of the game, um, you need to be paying money through the Switch store and giving nintendo their cut so like would we see apple then start clamping down on on things like the the cross play features that it allows developers to implement if if developers are you know themselves trying to do everything that they can to circumvent apple's 
you know, uh, revenue share. So it's th- this, it's messy. Um, yeah. I-, I think just this case is going to be messy. Oh, so messy. As Epic said, it would appeal if, if I am, if I'm correct. You are. And this is, so this is not over. There, there's a- at least one more case to be argued here and then when you consider the other other cases pending around the world you know who who knows how decisions in in those markets might might shift things if they come in before the uh before the appeal case is decided and who knows how apple's going to respond to whatever it's required to do because if if it all of a sudden it finds its hands tied with more requirements as to what it has to allow developers to do, other things it's allowing developers to do right now, it might decide it doesn't want to allow anymore. So it's going to get ugly. It's going to get very ugly. I think Rob Farhi in, uh, in his column today, uh, which explores kind of what wasn't said in the Epic versus Apple judgment, he he agreed with you, Brent, like, you know, this is not the end. I think he refers to it as this is just a paragraph in an increasingly complex situation, which I think sums it up quite nicely because, yeah, we've got all the different cases that Epic has got against Apple and then the various cases against Google and then various other players who may or may not enter the field you know, going forward. And, yeah, like this is going to be a long, long discussion that could change the industry, could not change it at all and but i think this judgment this first judgment is kind of a crucial pillar in that it's i imagine it's going to kind of color what goes forward like every decision that gets made after this regardless of like you know different market every every market has different rules and different stats and so forth this judgment to an extent feels like it's set a precedent because you can't ignore it like you can't I'd be intrigued to see another market say you know apple's definitely in monopoly or epic's definitely in the right when this this case in particular has has ruled ruled otherwise like it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out over many many years to come final topic death loop uh jeffrey you had thoughts what are your thoughts Yes, uh, so Deathloop, the latest uh, title from Arcane Studios, Leon, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, so, yeah, so the title released, um, it's still relatively early. We won't know how it'll do in the sales charts, but, um, you know, around its release, we did see a few conversations I thought were, you know, important to point out on a podcast, um, you know, just things for the industry and folks to, you know, just think about um, in a larger context. So um, the the first thing I wanted to point out that um, with Deathloop's release, it I, I could be wrong, and I, I'd like for anyone who just happens to be a researcher, archiver, video game facts to email me, but um, I do not recall, or I may not be aware of, the last time that we've had a video game by a Black game director, Dinga uh, Bakaba uh, of Arcane Studios, which featured uh, multiple Black characters, uh, in a single player game, because most of the times we're either, you'll either see black folks like uh, either in um, online titles, fighting games, what have you. Very rarely will you see them in single player games. And if you do, there'll be side characters like Barry from Final Fantasy VII or this, that, and the third. Um, so, yeah, so with this, um, you have 
a game starring Colt and antagonist um, Juliana. And it's really great because um, those kind of games, unfortunately, are still rare because between this release and last year, I think that we've had Deathloop and then 2020, we've had Half-Life Alex and Miles Morales, right? So those are three titles starring Black characters. But in Deathloop's case, it's one where I think that you know, the creative director, well, game director, sorry, you know, is a black person behind it. And it, it, it's something to to think about because he, um, thing about um, Bakaba, even his, his pinned tweet, it reads in part, I hope that the good reviews that we are getting will encourage other AAA studios to take creative risks. Now, he may not be saying the thing directly, but that to me sounds like, hey, you know, it, you shouldn't be scared of having more protagonists of color. And in, in, in this month, prior to Deathloop, um, you know, releasing, we also should remember that I think a week ago, we've had Life is Strange, uh, New Colors, you know, which stars a young uh, queer Asian woman. So, hey, that's great. You know, we're seeing more more of this in a, a AAA sense. Now, that is to say, in a AAA sense, although we, we are seeing more of it, it's still kind of lagging. But in the indie space, it's more prevalent. So, you know, I'm glad that the distinction of AAA was made. But anyway, back back to the point I was trying to make. The reason why I'm speaking about this is because these issues loop. <laughs> See what I did there? Loop uh, back into larger, you know, industry conversations. So, yeah, it's important to realize that, you know, with, with Deathloop, we have a, a visual AAA game where it's like, okay, these are people who look like me. And it was created by a person who looks like as me as well. And I, I think that's really cool. And, you know, we, we don't have a lot of that. And I, I, too, hope that this inspires more work because Miles Morales was well-received. Our good boy is still charting um, MPD charts. I'm pretty sure Deathloop is going to do the same. Now, that being said, that, that that's one of the conversations I wanted to get out there. The other thing with Deathloop, we also saw conversations regarding accessibility. And, you know, as we all know, and of course... You, you two can jump in and let me, let me know your thoughts. But we saw conversations where, you know, disabled folks express how the game isn't isn't really all that accessible. I would like to direct people to Dynamic Reacts. They have a really great video, uh, roughly 16 minutes or so, that speaks on the topic. And um, yeah, it just lays out, you know, issues regarding text, text size, not being able to remap controllers, controls, I'm sorry, um, and, and those kind of things. And, and it'll really paint the picture of why, you know, if you're disabled, it, it'd be frustrating. And this is certainly not on, on, on a knock on, on Deathloop, but it, it is important to have games that are more readily accessible because everyone um, may, everyone is not able-bodied. I myself, you know, I have, you know, vision disabilities because I wear glasses. So text size, for example, in, in subtitles, it really grinds my gears if it's very tiny. That doesn't help me, you know? Uh, please, please, please increase text size. Um, but, you know, other people have more, you know, pressing issues when it involves trigger controls and stuff like that. And yeah, and I would certainly encourage people to watch a video from Dynamic Reacts and also the tweet from Can I Play That uh, Founder? Oh, I'm forgetting their name. Can I Play That Founder? Uh, Courtney Craven has a Twitter thread that explains the issues in great detail. I think that's really important. But yeah, you know, it, it far far be it from me to I, I'm certainly not dogpiling, but um, 
yeah, if your game isn't too accessible, that that's not good, <laughs> especially now because um, I and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I I believe video games should have accessibilities. I don't know if there's a legal thing behind that other than just doing right by your community. I'm not sure. Um, I'll have to look into that. The last thing I wanted to mention regarding Deathloop was that, and this also goes back to all the other conversations I was mentioning, uh, with the release of Deathloop. Deathloop is a big game release. You know, of course, media and press, you know, covered it, reviewed it. Now, the very glaring thing that I saw with that is that very few major publications use the opportunity to just bring along a marginalized or or black writer on board to review the game. Now, of course, that's not to say you should only do that with a game that just happens to have characters from marginalized backgrounds. You should always use the chance to use your platform to, you know, bring along, you know, marginalized writers and, and expose them and give them the opportunity to do so. But I, I just think it, it it's frustrating, right? Where you have this really big game, multiple black characters, where a black person was in charge of directing the game, and I go to read reviews, and I am not seeing black voices speak on it. Now, to Arcane Studios' credit, they did do their due diligence by handing out review codes to content creators and other um, black folks within the gaming space to allow them the opportunity to review the games and share their thoughts with their respective audiences. So, you know, that is good. But on the media side of things, I, yeah, I, I was just frustrated because it, it always happens because, um, you know, why, why not just step back and then allow someone to do that so that way, you know, we can get closer to all those promises that were made, right? And, and, and the larger point I wanted to mention, and this again loops back to everything else, is that when you, when you Google game journalists or games journalism, it, it gets a while before you start not seeing, you know, what's assumed to be what a game journalist is, you know? So yeah, I, I just thought opportunities were missed uh, with that. And um you know, uh, the same thing this, uh, that that it's not to say that it didn't just happen with Deathloop. This, this I, something similar did also happen during the review um, media run for Miles Morales because there were very few uh, Latin people who were who were able to review it for larger media sites. And I, I just think he's you know, hey, you know, here's a game <laughs> of importance to our underrepresented groups. Maybe we should just step back and allow someone from said underrepresented group to be able to review it, you know, which helps journalism just get more diverse. Um, but yeah, those are the, the conversations I just wanted folks to think about regarding Deathloop. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it, it's interesting looking at, at the media landscape and like, uh, I don't know about you, but like I, I personally wouldn't look at any given site and say this site absolutely has an obligation to find a black journalist to review this this game with black leads by a black director, things things like that. Um, but I do think that that is a a great idea, and you would hope that one of them, one of the many game journalism outlets we have, uh, would do that, especially the the larger ones. And I, I think the problem that I see a lot of times in the games industry and games journalism and everywhere uh, is, is that there's something that we can all kind of agree 
would be, you know, that's a, that's a great thing. Someone should do that. Uh, and then we just hope that someone does it. And even though every individual can just say, yeah, well, I couldn't because I don't have a freelancer budget right now. And, and we don't have a black person on staff and I wasn't the one that made the hiring decisions for that. And, and like so many people have like, however many excuses they need on their, for, for their own site to not have done it, that we wind up just, you know, collectively with no one stepping forward and, and missing out on some good opportunities and good ideas be because we just, we don't prioritize it. We don't, we don't think ahead, um, to, to really concern ourselves with like, okay, well, how can we do this specific thing better? This, this game's coming up. How do we, what should we do with that review instead of just thinking like, oh, um, here's our, here's our, you know, our dishonored guy. Here's our immersive simulation guy. So let's just give it to him. And, and, you know, when, when we just kind of fall back on what we're used to and what our patterns have been, then we are just extending patterns from, from the past into the future, even though we can all sit here and say, you know what, game, journal game journalism of the past and how uh, not diverse it was is a problem and something that we should change. So it's, it's, it's really just like we need more people to, to look at the area under their own control and to, to put, in, put in the effort to make that better and to address these kind of issues in whatever you know minimal and unheralded way they can because they believe it's the right thing to do. And then eventually we hit a point where no one's concerned about, you know, whether we have, you know, a, a black reviewer reviewing this game with black leads because those things are not that uncommon. Mm. And you wind up just having that happen by happenstance anyways. You say about thinking ahead. I think this needs to be a moment. This needs to be an opportunity because the the conversation, as Jeffrey says, like the conversation around the representation of writers, the, the spread of writers exploring games that do step away from that typical white male protagonist. It's not new. It happened around Mars, um, Mars Morales. It happened more recently around the Far Cry 6 previews. Far Cry 6, the previews around Far Cry 6, there was a conversation. There were a couple of sites calling out the lack of Latino and Latino voices uh, that wrote the previews. And... Yeah, and exploring like how 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 representative the game is, and to an extent, five hours of a Far Cry game is ne not necessarily enough to realize, yeah, to to look at how well that perspective is being represented across an entire story. But now people have a couple of months to find those writers. You have a couple of uh, death loop reviews are out. That is done. But you've gone from the previews. We've got a couple of months to find the right writers, to find new writers, fresh voices, relevant, fresh voices, relevant voices for the reviews of Fire Cry 6. And this is a moment to kind of advance and, and, and as you say, like progress, like try something different. Try, I say try something different, like it's something, you know, just for a whim, like try the right thing. Try try to make that right change. Try to explore who is who is critiquing these games and how and why they are critiquing these games. Because there is, video games have advanced so much and, and the conversation about video, video games has advanced so much. The reviews are no longer, the graphics are cool, the sounds are cool. 
it's replayable 10 out of 10. Like, it, they've not been that for so long. Like, video games are now, to an extent, critiqued. There's a lot more room for improvement there, but they are critiqued into in what they're trying to say, what viewpoints they're trying to represent, and the media needs to keep up with that because we are falling behind massively. I say we, I've always been B2B, I've never been that B2C side. But I know, there's me stumbling, there's me kind of distancing myself, and that is wrong. Like, we do need to, the media, all of us, need to catch up with what is happening in games as because as Jeffrey says like we're starting to see progress we've got a triple a game with two ooh, you're a black lead and a black antagonist and lots of black characters with a black director we need to be matching the pace of that progress or ideally being faster than it and kind of keeping ahead of the progress there this this needs to be opportunity we've got warning now if we get to october november whenever it is that far cry 6 is out and we have the exact same conversation around the reviews we have learned nothing we have squandered an opportunity yeah, and I, I I should preface this by saying, of course, I'm speaking about larger media entities. I don't know what kind of opportunities smaller outlets who are more diverse may have, but I, I do want to stress that's a distinction that I'm making when it comes to the larger media entities. But yeah, you're right. You know, Far Cry 6 is a few months away. That's an opportunity. And then later down the line, <laughs> and we have Forspoken, that's coming out next year so that's another opportunity as well um but yeah it, uh, to uh, to just echo what's been said here is that i i don't think there would be anything lost if your one person that normally reviews said game um just takes a step back and allows a marginalized writer to instead do it also speaking more to that as well is that you know give opportunities to other people you know the, the other thing, too, is that if you do find, you know, individuals um, from underrepresented groups who, who normally do work with you, that's fine. But, you know, that opportunity isn't being extended to everyone if you just happen to keep going to the same person or same people. We're running low on time. Um, I'm kind of conscious that we've, we've, we've focused on the media conversation, that, largely because that was the last one you, you finished on in that, that quite epic, epic summer, summation of uh, all the conversations around Deathloop. I love how like one release can now prompt so many different discussions as to how the industry needs to improve. Did want to touch on like yeah accessibility? I think we've touched on this before in episodes. Like that is absolutely an an area that all companies need to be considering, and and primarily for those who are uh, who are you know players with disabilities, those who are perhaps cut off from enjoying enjoying video games in the way that, that the majority of people do. Like obviously for them, but also for just players in generally. Like you know you say about tech size. Like you know, I I don't currently have any vision problems. I have not been able to read a uh, you know in game text in a in a arcane game uh well until i recently got a new bigger telly i was not able to read the text because it is just so small and there is no option to increase it and like that obviously i am i am way low down on the priority list of people to to you know support with accessibility options but the fact that it's affecting me i can only imagine how much it's affecting those who have you know genuine disabilities and you know more serious disabilities in terms of how they play like games need to be made open to to more people so i absolutely agree with your point on that jeffrey all of this is like everyone benefits from mm. from all of it everyone benefits from accessibility features and and being able to to play a game in a way that's the most comfortable for them everyone benefits from having a variety of main characters and a variety of perspectives um told in in the media that they consume and and then even in the the reviews and the media that they they read about that other media um 
living a sheltered life where you only get the same story over and over and over again with, you know, slightly different uh, facial hair each time is is not as enriching as, you know, just being experienced with more perspectives and, and more people coming from more places that aren't where you come from. And and I think that's that's something that the industry has uh, realized a lot in the last few years, where even if it started as a purely commercial interest, you know, let's let's make a bigger tent and give all these other people who didn't like our old stuff a reason to give us money. Um, I, th- I think the benefits of, of that approach pay off for literally everyone, no matter your background. That is all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with your regular news show. Uh, before then, you can go back on your podcasting feed, as I mentioned earlier, and find the three panel sessions, no, the four panel sessions that we ran for Best Places to Work Awards UK last year. So um, we've got conversations on climate change, diversity, mental health and supporting your staff, uh, an interview with last year's Best Boss winner. So go back and listen to those. They are also The video versions of those are also available on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can find all podcast episodes on the podcasting platform of your choice and as always you can get more news insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz 